we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. The U.S. dollar and the stock market continue to be under a little bit of pressure this week as anxieties are rising over the fate of the tax cuts with so many investors uh, are putting so much uh, expectation into, and I've gone over uh, many times on this podcast why I do not believe the tax cuts are going to help the economy. I mean, tax cuts are good for the economy to the extent that they reflect a smaller government, right? If you are going to make government smaller and government is going to be less of a burden on the economy, if government is going to take fewer resources out of the economy, freeing those resources up for the private sector. If you're lowering people's taxes because you relieve them of the responsibility of paying for a larger government, that is a big positive. Anytime we can take resources out of the government sector and put them back into the private sector, those resources will be used more efficiently and more productively, and the economy will be better off. But if we simply cut taxes but allow government to get bigger and bigger, that is not good for the economy because we haven't diminished the size of government or the amount of resources it is consuming. All that's happening is the government has to find an alternative source of paying for the resources it is using. And if it's not going to collect it through taxes, well, it's going to have to borrow it. It's going to have to print it. And those other ways 
of sucking up those resources do more economic damage than what otherwise would have been the case if they had just left taxes alone. So everybody is wrong in believing that these tax cuts are going to be good for the economy. They are not going to be good for the economy, and they're certainly not going to be good for the dollar. They are the exact wrong thing that you would do if you wanted to help the dollar. They will specifically hurt the dollar because by definition, instead of removing dollars from private citizens to spend them, the government is going to print money out of thin air and spend that. So they are creating extra dollars. They're going to be debasing the dollar. But putting that aside, there is still a lot of you know uh, nervousness out there about whether or not the tax cuts will pass and in what form they are going to be. So the markets are under pressure. You know, the weakest stock so far this week is General Electric, which got really beat up in the last couple of days. It was up about 2% today, but it's still down now better than 11% on the week, and it's only Wednesday. You know, General Electric is now down better than 40%, I think 43% so far this year, and the year's not over. I think I mentioned once before on this podcast, GE is the only surviving original member of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and really it is having a difficult a time. Uh, it's, it's amazing that the, that the Dow is still this strong. I mean, the Dow is not even one and a half percent below its record high. So we've barely corrected, despite the fact that you've got uh, General Electric really getting beat up. You know, the dollar index back below 94, it closed uh, at 93.82. You know, we got above 95 last week, but we couldn't hold there. And we are now heading lower. Gold was down about a buck or two today, but it was up $8 in the morning. I think we came to within a dollar of making a one-month high in the price of gold. So very close to a breakout. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as is typically the case, a lot of selling uh, came in and knocked the price of gold down. Of course, the beneficiary, I think, from the fact that gold hasn't been able to rally yet is Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin, as I'm recording this, is almost $7,300 a coin. But the real story is what happened between my last podcast, which I recorded Friday, and this one. Because over the weekend, Bitcoin's price collapsed down to, I think, 5500 which was about a 30% decline from the high price. And it's already back up to over 7200 It's now rallied 30% from that 5500 in just a few days. So incredible volatility in, in Bitcoin. And I am going to get back to Bitcoin. I've got some more stuff I want to say about Bitcoin. I'm going to save it for the end. I know I've been putting my Bitcoin comments at the end of my podcast. So uh, if you want to hear what I have to say about Bitcoin, then just make sure and stick around for this entire podcast. because I am going to circle back to it. But I want to start the podcast off by focusing on the tax cuts. Although before I do that, I want to actually mention some of the inflation numbers that came out because we got the producer price numbers that came out yesterday. We were up four-tenths of 1% in the month of October. That's a big jump. Uh, they were looking for one-tenth. And that was, you know, we got four-tenths last month. So we got four-tenths back-to-back. Those are big numbers. In fact, the year-over-year increase in producer prices is 2.8%. That is the biggest rise in about six years. So that shows inflation really, really starting to pressure uh, uh, prices. We got the consumer price numbers out today. 
not nearly as strong, up just one-tenth of one percent. Remember, last month they were up five-tenths, so this month not as much. Year-over-year, up two percent on consumer prices. But what does that mean? If producer prices are up 2.8 percent, yet producers only passed on two percent to the consumer, that means that there's some pressure on producers. There's some pressure on businesses. You know who's also putting pressure on businesses? Amazon. Amazon out today, you know, they bought Whole Foods, right? They cut the prices. Now they're cutting them again. I mean, they're putting incredible price pressure. Because remember, Amazon doesn't really care about making a profit because they don't have to. But your typical uh, grocer needs to make a profit. And obviously, it's going to be harder and harder to do that when you've got companies like Amazon that continuing to put pressure on retail prices, even as inflation is putting more upward pressure on producer prices. Hey, by the way, though, somebody emailed me uh, some screenshots of Christmas trees that are on sale on the Walmart website. And the guy emailed me the, the Christmas tree from this year and the exact same Christmas tree for last year. Same exact tree, except it had 11% fewer lights. Everything else was the same. It was a frocked Christmas tree. I forget the height, but the exact same height. But and they already come with the lights, pre-strung. But this year, the tree has 11% fewer lights than it had last year. Apart from that, everything is exactly the same, except the price. The price of the Christmas tree this year is 16.5% higher, higher than the exact same tree was last year. So again, there is a lot of inflation out there. I mean, somehow, I guess, if they crunch this through the, uh, uh, the hedonic adjustments, maybe they'll say... Less lights is better. Maybe the government will try to convince us that having the same tree with fewer lights is an improvement because, you know, we don't have all these lights getting in the way of the tree. We have more room for our ornaments. So maybe this is an improvement, and they can pretend that the price of this Christmas tree actually went down. But for the people who are living in the real world, uh, prices are going up, and they're going to go up a lot more uh, as the months and years go by because there is so much inflation that is already in this pipeline. But I want to talk about the tax cuts and some of the things that are creating jitters in the market. First of all, the Senate came out yesterday and all of a sudden threw a curveball into the, the tax cuts. And they said they're going to repeal, as part of the tax cuts, they are going to repeal the individual mandate from Obamacare. That is the part that requires you to pay a penalty to the government if you don't buy insurance. So they want to get rid of that as part of this tax cut. Now, first of all, the fact that they have to throw that in there, to me, shows that they needed to do that to tempt some Republicans, maybe like Rand Paul, that were on the fence or maybe weren't going to vote for the tax cut, and now they're dangling this thing to say, hey, even though you might not like the tax cut, vote for it anyway because we get rid of the individual mandate, which we know you don't like. So I think the fact that they had to you know, go for the Hail Mary on, on this, you know, shows that they're having a hard time getting enough Republican support to get this thing passed. But here's the ridiculous part. The government claims that by eliminating the individual mandate, it's going to save the government a lot of money, and now they're going to use the savings to uh, pay for the, a larger tax cut for the middle class. Now, wait a minute. The individual mandate means that people who don't buy insurance have to pay a penalty to the government. So the government is now collecting these penalties. That's revenue to the government. 
the government gets the penalty. Now, if you get rid of the individual mandate, then there's no more penalties. So initially, you would think, wait a minute, wouldn't that cost the government money? After all, they're no longer going to collect the penalties. Now, here is the Republican logic. If they stop penalizing people for buying health insurance, then fewer people will buy health insurance. Now, some of those people who are buying health insurance now are getting a government subsidy. So if they don't buy health insurance, then the government won't have to provide the subsidy. And that's where they save the money. And it gets better than that. Then they argue that if younger, healthy people drop out because they're no longer buying, because they're no longer getting punished for not buying, then insurance premiums will rise even faster than they're rising right now. And because health insurance premiums rise a lot faster, that will cause even more people who currently have insurance to drop out of the market. And that means even fewer subsidies that the government is going to have to pay. So you get this? They're saying what we're going to do is save money by forcing insurance premiums to go through the roof. And now we can give people a tax cut. Well, what if you're one of the unfortunate guys who keeps his insurance? Maybe you've got your insurance through... Uh, your employer, and I think they're talking about getting rid of the individual mandates, not the employer mandates, but what if your employer still has to buy you insurance and the cost of insurance is skyrocketing, and so he ends up having to cut your pay? I mean, maybe your pay ends up getting reduced by more than your tax cut, or even if you're buying the insurance on your own. What if because so many young, healthy people drop out uh, that the insurance rate rises by so much that it, it, it consumes your entire tax cut. I mean, basically, the Republicans are saying we are going to deliberately cause insurance prices to rise so that fewer people will actually buy it so that we won't have to subsidize it. And we couldn't care less about the people who are still buying it, even though they have to pay more because, hey, we're just going to give those people a tax cut that hopefully will help cover the, the extra cost of their insurance. So this is all nonsense. They shouldn't even be doing this. I mean, if you're going to repeal the, the individual mandate, at least also repeal the requirement of insurance companies to cover people with pre-existing conditions. But they don't want to do that. That is why the mandate is there. The actual only problem with the mandate is the penalties are too low. They should be raising the penalties. If they really want to maintain the prohibition of discriminating against pre-existing conditions, then they need higher penalties because most people are just paying the penalty and they're not buying the insurance. And I think, actually, this will be a revenue loser because now the government is not going to get the penalty money from the people who uh, were being penalized. So that's going to be the immediate impact, uh, the impact of skyrocketing insurance premiums, uh, causing more people who are now getting subsidies to drop out because even with the subsidy, they can't afford it. That's probably going to take place over the next few years. So the immediate effect is the government is going to simply lose revenue. But this is how disingenuous the Republicans are being, they're saying we want a tax cut, even if the effect of the tax cut is a big spike in insurance premiums, which for many people may actually be higher than the tax cut that they're going to get. And the only way to actually benefit from the tax cut would be to cancel your insurance policy and not even have any, which for a lot of people may not be considered a, a good thing. You know, another thing that's really bothering me about the tax cuts, I mean, there's so many things that bothered me about, about this, but I was watching, I guess, this kind of town hall on uh, Fox News, and Paul Ryan was there talking to a crowd of people trying to sell the benefits of the tax cut. 
And there was a small businesswoman there, and you know he was talking about how the house plan levels the playing field or makes things fairer for the small businesses because he said, you know, the big corporations, they pay the corporate tax, which is now 35%, but the individuals, they pay uh, the individual tax, which at, at, is a maximum rate of 43% when you throw in Obamacare and all that stuff, 43%. And he even mentioned, you know, when you throw in the state income tax, in some states you're about 50%, which is true, which, you know, if you go back and look at my testimony, the first time I testified in front of the U.S. Congress, I was sitting next to some woman talking about taxes, and I mentioned that I was paying 50% of my income in taxes, and she didn't believe me. She said, that's impossible. I must be lying. And so I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I passed it to her so I can show her the math. And she, like, refused to look at it. But, I mean, that you can see that whole thing on uh, Mr. Schiff Goes to Washington. That's on my, on my YouTube channel. But Paul Ryan pointed out that, hey, you know, for some people, the rates can run over 50% when you throw in the state taxes. But if you just look at the federal rate, it's about 43%. He says that's not fair because the small business is paying 43% and the corporations are paying 35 And under this new tax bill, if we bring the corporate rate down to 20%, and even if we leave the, the personal rate at 38.5% is the top rate in the Senate, 396 they leave that in the House that that rate is still higher than 20%. That's all a lie. That's one big lie. I mean, can't even the Republicans tell the truth about anything? I mean, this woman had a subchapter S corporation, right? Everybody that has a subchapter S corporation, if they wanted to be taxed like a C corporation, there's nothing that stops them from converting to a C corporation. It's easy. Any S corp could become a C corp. Any limited partnership could become a C-Corp. The reason they don't is because they don't want to, because it's a worse deal. You know, what Paul Ryan never talks about is the fact that corporations face double taxation. They have two layers of taxes. And when you add up both layers, the corporate rate today is much higher than the pass-through rate. It's much higher than the rate on the LLC, because you pay 35%, and then on the 65% that's left over, when you pay it out as a dividend, there's another 24% tax on top of that. So it's already higher. Now, if you lower the corporate rate to 20%, which is what they're proposing in both the House and the Senate bill, then corporations would pay 20% tax. Now, on the 80% they had left, if they paid all that out, uh, there are, the shareholders would pay another 24%. So add those two taxes together, and you're at 39.2%. So that would be about the same as the tax now uh, for S-corporations and LLCs because that's about the same tax rate uh, that we have now. Uh, but what they want to do is they want to lower it down to 25% or you know 9% or whatever on, on a certain amount of money. Uh, but that is not necessary because if anybody feels that the corporate rate is a better deal, they can just switch to a C-corp. You know, if you have a C-Corp and you want to switch to an LLC, that's expensive because it's a taxable event. you got to calculate uh, the value of retained earnings, and, you know, you could end up paying taxes. But there is no tax consequence. Anybody can go from an LLC to a C-Corp anytime they want. If you'd rather be taxed like a giant corporation, if you're running a dry cleaner and you think IBM's got a better tax structure than you, you could take the IBM tax structure anytime you want. You know, this whole thing is a lie. Now, one aspect of this where, you know, maybe he's skirting along the edges of the truth 
is that, you know, most people that run their own small business, they don't have lots of retained earnings. See, corporations, they don't pay out most of their income in dividends. A lot of corporations don't pay any dividends at all. So after they pay the corporate tax, they just hold on to the money, right? So that money doesn't get taxed unless it gets paid out as a dividend. In fact, that's why a lot of corporations just buy back stock because the shareholders would rather see their stock go up uh, than have to pay taxes on a dividend. You don't have to pay tax on the stock appreciation until after you sell the stock. So most people that run a small business, they don't want to accumulate a pile of retained earnings. They want to take the money out, right? Whatever they earn, they want, they want it. They want to spend it. They want to pay their mortgage. They want to pay their electric bill. They want to send their kids to school, right? They need the money. And so obviously if they became a C-Corp, they would be killed because they'd be paying the double tax on everything they earn. But to the extent that you are a small business and you don't want to pull out all the money that you earn. Let's say you want to leave some money in your business because you want to make some capital investments. There you're at a disadvantage because you have to pay the tax on the money whether you take it out or not, right? And so there you could say that the small business has a disadvantage on uh, investing retained earnings. And there is an easy fix for that. You don't have to change the tax code all you have to do is say, you know what, we can have 100% expensing. So if you're a small business and you earn $100,000, but you want to take 20000 of that and invest in some new equipment, then you can just spend the 20000 and your income is only 80000 See, right now, you would have 100000 in income, and then you'd have to pay your taxes, and then you'd have to invest the 20000 out of the money you have left. So all you really have to do to accomplish what Paul Ryan says he wants to accomplish is allow for 100% expensing. Allow any business, big business, little business, if you buy some new equipment, just write it off. You don't have to amortize it, depreciate it over a number of years. You want to invest in, in new office equipment. You want to invest in a new machine. Uh, you, you, you just spend it, you know, and then don't have to pay income tax. That's an easy fix. But what they're doing now, all this nonsense, oh, the small investor, they're getting taxed at a rate that's higher than the corporations. No, they're not. They're getting taxed at a lower rate. It's the corporations that are facing these ridiculously high taxes because of the double taxation. Now, another thing that they could do is end the double taxation. There's two ways you can end the double taxation. Don't tax dividends, right? Leave the corporate rate up at 35% and make dividends tax-free. That's one way. Or you eliminate the corporate tax and just raise the tax on dividends to 35%, make the dividend tax be the same as the tax on any other income. I mean, either one of those solutions works. Personally, I prefer the solution of eliminating the corporate tax because if you believe in you know the progressive income tax, and I don't even believe in it, but let's say you do, that way the rich people will pay a higher tax on their corporate dividends than the poor people. Right? That makes it simple, right? Because you've got a little old lady getting a dividend on AT&T you know, if AT&T is paying the, the, the tax, then that little old lady is paying the tax. Maybe you don't think she has enough income. Maybe maybe you don't want to tax that little old lady. So tax the dividends on the individual level. So if a little old lady who's living off her AT&T dividends, she's going to have such a low income that she's not going to pay any tax on those dividends. But a really rich guy who's got a huge portfolio and is using his AT&T dividends, you know, that, you know, for his dues, for his country club dues, Oh, let, let that guy pay the tax. 
And I think that's more efficient. So let's get rid of the corporate tax. But, you know, nobody wants to talk about that because, oh, no, that's just going to benefit the rich. But the bottom line is they're trying to sell this tax cut with a bunch of lies. And, you know, I was watching again on this, um, you know, town hall meeting. And there was a question of Paul Ryan that got through. And somebody said, why don't you cut spending? Why don't you pay for the tax cuts by spending cuts? And he just said, well, we don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about that. He said, look, uh, I don't want to complicate the tax cuts with spending cuts. I mean, we don't want to get involved in that. Let's just, you know, we're just going to focus on cutting taxes. I mean, that's like a little kid, you know, say, you know, let's just dispense with the dinner and just go right to dessert. I don't want to deal with all that broccoli, you know. I just want to, I just want to eat ice cream. Right? Yeah, every Republican wants to go for tax cuts. That's the fun part. But the hard part is how do you pay for the tax cuts? You cut government spending. You need to make government smaller so that you don't need as much taxes to pay the bills, right? But what happened to the Republicans that want smaller government, that want to cut stuff? We control, the Republicans control the House and the Senate. So why not cut spending? I talked about that on my last podcast, because they don't want to, because they don't want to lose the votes of the people who are receiving the money that the government is spending. So the Republicans are just as much committed to welfare as the Democrats, right? Maybe it's not, you know, just welfare for the poor, but all government spending. You know, and I mentioned before on the podcast that, you know, the, the only buckets they have are the Defense Department, which the Democrats are willing to cut, but not the Republicans, Right? And which should be cut because we spend way too much. And it's not really defense. It's a military spending. It's the military industrial complex. We could, we could cut the budget in half and no one's going to mess with us. We're still going to be fine. But the Republicans don't want to be cu- accused of being soft on, on defense. So we can't cut that. They don't want to cut Social Security. They don't want to cut Medicare because a lot of Republicans get Social Security and Medicare. So they're afraid of that. I mentioned you can't cut the interest on the national debt. So I said all that's left is, uh, you know, all these welfare programs. But there's one thing I left out, and that's the corporate welfare. That's the big giveaways like the farm subsidies, right? Why not get rid of the farm subsidies? Well, because, you know, there's some Republicans in Iowa and farmers benefit from these farm subsidies. And that's the same thing. Like, why won't they get rid of that Jones Act? Well, because there's some shipbuilders, uh, you know, I don't know, in Louisiana or whatever state they're building these overpriced U.S. ships and they need protection. And so you have all these Republican senators that have their, you know, pork barrel spending that's built in there. And so we can't even get rid of any of the corporate welfare because obviously the corporate recipients of the corporate welfare are big donors uh, to uh, the Republican uh, incumbents who want to stay in office. And so to stay in office, they got to continue to get that money. And so they're not going to cut any of that spending. And so there is no spending that the Republicans are willing to cut. So they can't be honest. They can't be honest and tell us that they can't cut our taxes because they're not willing to cut spending, that they're no better than Democrats. So they want to lie and pretend we're going to get tax cuts. So they have to keep on lying, telling one lie after another to try to sell this thing, to try to sell the public on a bill of goods. And let's see, they may not even pass it because it's so disingenuous. But the problem is, even if it passes, the whole thing may backfire. And it's even possible that some of the Republicans who vote for this may end up regretting it. They may end up losing to Democrats because there's going to be a lot of people that actually get tax hikes as a result of this phony tax cut, right? You're, you know, you get your Christmas present, you're expecting a cut, and you end up paying more 
than you thought you were going to pay. And now you get to thank the Republican congressman who you voted for. And he vote, you voted for him. He said he was going to cut your taxes. And instead, he increased your taxes. So I think even the Republicans are almost damned if they do and damned if they don't now. Because if they don't give a tax cut, right, well, then you failed. You know, you did nothing. And if you give a tax cut, that turns out to be a tax hike. And, of course, it's not going to grow the economy. That's the other thing. And the deficits are going to get bigger. And that'll let the Democrats say, hey, we told you so, right? You, we told you that we're, we, you know, these tax cuts wouldn't pay for themselves. That's because that's exactly what's going to happen. They're not going to pay for themselves. I wish if the Republicans just decided, you know what? If we're going to go down, let's go down on principle. Let's really deliver a big tax cut. But to do that, we need a big cut in government spending. And let's start eliminating departments, eliminating agencies. You know, let we maybe we can start with the Department of Energy. Remember, Rick Perry is the Secretary of Energy, and the Department of Energy was one of the departments, I think, that Rick Perry was actually able to remember the name of. I think that's the one that he remembered, or maybe it was the one that he forgot. But he did want to eliminate it when he was running for president. All right, well, he's the head of that agency now. Eliminate it. Just they recommend that we get rid of it, dismantle it. But, of course, none of that is happening because Donald Trump, nor no, nobody in his administration, wants to drain any water out of that swamp. I mean, if we drained a lot of water out of the swamp, then we could really cut taxes. But because the water level in the swamp is rising, the government needs more of our money. And, yeah, they're going to pretend to give us a little bit of a tax cut with their left hand, but they're going to take away uh, a lot more money with their right hand either because they create more inflation, they take more debt, or they jack up health insurance costs because they pull away uh, the penalty that forced some people to buy it, young, healthy people, meaning that the price goes way up because insurance companies can no longer discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. So all they're covering is more and more sick people and, and things are spiraling out of control. So let me circle back and go over what happened with with Bitcoin, uh, over the weekend, I think it was on Saturday or Saturday, Sunday, all of a sudden the price of Bitcoin came under some serious pressure. And the price of Bitcoin Cash, which was that original spinoff in that hard fork where everybody that had Bitcoin got, I guess, an equal number of, uh, of Bitcoin Cash. All of a sudden you had this Bitcoin Cash. And initially, Bitcoin Cash, I think it was two or $300. I forget exactly where it was when it first started, started trading separately uh, from Bitcoin. But over the weekend, it rose all the way up as high as, I think, $2,400, $2,500 of Bitcoin. I mean, it was up 50 60 70%. I mean, huge move up in Bitcoin cash. And at the same time, Bitcoin regular uh, was just going down. And it got as low as 5500 Remember, it had, it had touched 7900 last week. And then it traded down to like 5,500. That was a 30% drop. And, you know, th that took place just over a couple days. And the story was that, hey, Bitcoin cash is much easier to use than Bitcoin because it's less expensive, it's faster, and that more and more merchants were going to be using Bitcoin cash instead of Bitcoin. And that actually Bitcoin cash was the real Bitcoin. Uh, and, and, and maybe eventually they would just drop the cash and Bitcoin cash would become Bitcoin. And I guess, you know, the original Bitcoin, I don't know, maybe they'd make it Bitcoin Classic, you know, like Coke and New Coke, right? So they would maybe make Bitcoin, Bitcoin Classic. I don't know. I mean, I've actually heard somebody say it was going to be Bitcoin Classic. I just, just made that up. But I don't know. There's all kinds of rumors going around. And, uh, and so Bitcoin went right down and Bitcoin Cash went way up. Now, here we are today. Bitcoin Cash is all the way back down to 1200 I mean, that's almost where it started 
I think it was a little cheaper. I think it was about 800. So it, you know, it, it's not all the way back to where it was, but it's lost, you know, better than 50% from its peak price. So if you bought, you know, Bitcoin Cash up near the highs, you're, you know, you're down 50% or more already if you happen to buy at the peak of that rally. Meanwhile, Bitcoin that went all the way down to 5500 is back at 7300 and change. So that's better than a 30% rise had you bought that dip, which I think some big hedge funds, I was reading that there was some big hedge fund money that went into Bitcoin and, and bought that dip and caused uh, the market to rally. And then today, we're up again big today, up another 10% on the day because Square, they announced that they're looking into uh, Bitcoin and seeing if they can work Bitcoin into their platform. And so this has generated a lot more buying interest and more articles, and one of which that I put on my Facebook page again today, and I got a lot of criticism from the Bitcoiners. And it was an article I saw in Zero Hedge, once again saying that Bitcoin is digital gold, right? That this proves Bitcoin is digital gold. And you know this is the, the most ridiculous argument because the people who are saying this, and again, I pointed this out before, they are admitting that Bitcoin is too slow and too expensive to use as a medium of exchange. That is what I said in the beginning. Early on, the people that were criticizing me for, you know, for promoting gold over Bitcoin said, oh, gold's no good. You can't use gold to buy a cup of coffee, right? But I can use Bitcoins to buy a cup of coffee. So the reason that Bitcoin was going to be better than gold is because it was going to be so much easier to use your Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. That was the advantage that it had. You can spend it. You could buy a pack of chewing gum. You could buy a cup of coffee. Can't do that with gold, right? You can't shave a piece of your gold bar off and, and buy some coffee. That's what people used to say. Now, of course, using a company like Gold Money, you actually can pay for a cup of coffee with an ounce of gold. So it's not, it's not that it's impossible. You can do it. It just depends on where you have your gold stored. If you have the gold in a safe in your basement, yes, you can't use it to buy a cup of coffee. But if you have the gold at a Brinks vault through gold money, then you can use an app on your cell phone to use that gold to uh, buy some coffee. If the merchant wants your gold, and if he doesn't want your gold, then just take your free MasterCard out of your wallet and use that uh, to buy your cup of coffee. And you, know, you're, you can liquidate some of your gold to pay for it. So you can do that. But that was the initial argument about why Bitcoin was better than gold. Well, here we are today. It's now so expensive and so slow that it is pro prohibitively high to use your Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee. So people aren't doing that. And now the people that are in Bitcoin say, well, it doesn't matter. Yes, we acknowledge that it's not going to be a medium of exchange. It's going to be like gold. It's going to be digital gold because people aren't using gold as a medium of exchange. So they're going to have Bitcoin the same way. So in other words, Bitcoin is exactly like gold, except it's nothing like gold. I mean, they're saying it's digital gold. It's not digital gold. I mean, maybe it's digital fool's gold, but it's digital nothing. But they're saying people are going to buy it anyway. Even though it's not going to be used for what everybody thought it was going to be used, we're going to hold it anyway because, look, it's gone up so much. It just proved it's a great investment. The reason it went up so much is because people believed that it would be circulating as a medium of exchange. But now that we realize that that's not going to happen, now we have to come up with a reason why it shouldn't collapse. Because if Bitcoin is not the cryptocurrency that people are going to use, right? If people are going to use other cryptocurrencies because they're better, quicker, cheaper, faster, whatever, then Bitcoin is worth nothing. But now the people that own Bitcoin 
want to try to say, well, why it's worth something anyway, even though it's slow and it doesn't really work very well. And there's lots of better digital currencies out there. This one is so good. People are going to hold it anyway because it's digital gold. I mean, this is all a bunch of rationalization to try to justify the price, despite the fact that it's not delivering on what was promised. Because it isn't digital gold. You know what's digital gold? Gold money. See, gold money lets you take real gold and put it in a digital form for the purpose of transferring it around the world. But what you're doing is transferring real gold digitally. When you have Bitcoin, you don't have anything that's like gold. You don't have any gold. You don't have any right to have any gold. You can't do anything with it. You can't do any of the things that you could do with gold. You can redeem your gold whenever you want out of your gold money account. So that would be real digital gold where you can, you can convert it into physical gold. But you can't convert Bitcoin into anything. But this is the ultimate in rationalization where people are refusing to admit because even if you believe, right, if you believe that cryptocurrencies are the future, right, that people are going to be using cryptocurrencies instead of dollars and euros and yen, but they're not going to be using Bitcoin. They're going to be using some other coin that's faster, and it may be a coin that no one's even invented yet. I mean, there's all sorts of coins that are, you know, are out there uh, that you know, are better than Bitcoin, and just not as many people know about them yet, but their prices are going up. I mean, there's a lot of coins, digital currencies now. I look at them, and their prices are up a lot more than Bitcoin this year. So people are starting to bet on different cryptocurrencies. But if Bitcoin is going to lose the battle, which I said from the beginning, right? You know, I thought maybe they're the MySpace uh, to Facebook or whatever. Uh, if Bitcoin is going to lose the battle for the best digital currency, then what is the justification for it being a store of value? What value are you storing if it can't be used as money or if it's not being used as money? I mean, why do you have to have Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies if the sole purpose of Bitcoin is just to hold on to it and do nothing with it because, in theory, it's going to keep going up in price because somehow it's a store of value? Well, it's only a store of value until it falls. And then it's a store of nothing because there's no value to store. You know, I mentioned earlier that I thought that one of the things that could hurt Bitcoin or could be the pin that pricks the bubble would be a big increase in the price of gold, right? Now, we haven't had that yet. Gold is really not broke out. It got above 1,300. I thought maybe that would be it, but no, it really wasn't. Maybe we have to get above 1,400. It's hard to say where that point is. But now I think it's even more relevant because the gold price of Bitcoin is more important than ever before. So I think if you look at a chart, to the extent that there is one, and you look at the the, the gold price of Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin is in a huge bull market in terms of gold, just like it is in terms of the dollar. But if you see a point where we break that uptrend, where the price of Bitcoin starts to fall in gold terms, even if it's still rising in dollar terms, but if the price of gold really starts to jump and you don't get a corresponding jump in Bitcoin, and now all of a sudden that Bitcoin is also falling relative to gold, then the people who thought they were holding digital gold might say, you know what, it's time to go for some real gold because now the real gold is starting to perform. It's outperforming my digital gold. So let me just sell my digital gold. I can do it really easy. Let me just buy some real gold for a while. See, that could be the, the beginning of the end because I don't think there's going to be enough buying for the people who bought digital gold to get out and get into real gold because somebody else has to take the other side of that trade. So if you have these big hedge funds and big investors who have loaded up on Bitcoin, 
knowing that nobody's ever going to use it in commerce. They just bought it as a trade. They just bought it because they if it was going up, and there's no other reason to own it other than the fact that you think it's going to go up because you can't do anything with it other than just hold on to it and hope it keeps going up. The minute it starts going down, and the people who bought it for that reason want to get out, if there's no real buying to take to take the other side of that trade, then the market is going to implode. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And again, I don't know when it's going to happen. You know, I read on my uh, my Facebook page, people are making fun of me. Oh, Peter, you, you've lost all credibility now because you're, you're wrong on Bitcoin. I mean, why? I mean, you know, even if I am wrong on Bitcoin, why does that mean I've lost my credibility on everything else? You know, does that mean the corollary? What if I happen to be right on Bitcoin? Does that mean the people who like Bitcoin are wrong on everything else? No. You're, it, you have to look at Bitcoin all by itself, right? If I'm wrong on Bitcoin, I'm wrong on Bitcoin. That doesn't mean I'm wrong on everything else. I'd just be wrong on that thing. Maybe I'm wrong on other things, but, you know, I can't be right on everything. Just like if you're believing in Bitcoin and it turns out that you're wrong, that doesn't discredit everything else that you believe. I mean, maybe you believe other things that are right. Maybe you're wrong. But this is one thing. This is one call. I happen to think that I've got it right. Now, did I underestimate the bubble potential of Bitcoin? Absolutely. Do I wish I had bought a bunch of Bitcoin? Yeah, I wish I put my entire net worth into Bitcoin so I could be a multi-billionaire, right? Maybe I'd even be a trillionaire. Although if I tried to put my entire net worth into Bitcoin uh, when it was a few cents, there, I couldn't have bought the Bitcoin. Nobody would. I would have run the price up all by myself. So it's hard to say how many I could have bought, you know, at, at, at that cheaper price. Uh, but obviously, you know, I could have put a lot of money in and I would have made a tremendous return. I mean, this is not the first bubble that I've missed out on. Believe me, there have been a lot of bubbles that I didn't profit in on the way up. And of course, I, I didn't lose on the way down. And this may be the biggest bubble I've ever missed out on. I mean, clearly, I mean, if you look at the price appreciation, I think this is the biggest bubble ever. And maybe it's going to keep going. As I said many times on this podcast, I don't know where the top is. You know, maybe it was 7,900 from last week, or maybe it's, you know, hi, you know, it's funny. I, I did an interview with thestreet.com, and they, the guy asked me, you know, what, you know, what do you think of Bitcoin? Because, again, they, that's all they asked me now is about is Bitcoin. And, you know, I, you know, I said, well, you know, it's at 8,000, almost 8,000. I mean, it doesn't make any sense that it's at 8,000. So, you know, I guess it can go to 80,000. The headline, next story. Peter Schiff says Bitcoin can go to 80,000, as if I was actually predicting that it would go to 80,000. I just said it's possible because, you know, it said anything is possible. But I do think it's it's improbable, right? The higher the price goes, the, the less likely it's actually going to get there, right? So just because something is possible doesn't mean it's probable, doesn't mean it's likely. I mean, it could happen, but it probably won't because along the way, something could happen. I mean, look, Bitcoin just fell 30% in a couple of days, and yes, the price bounced back, but how do you know? Next time it falls 30%, maybe there won't be any buyers. Maybe it will keep on falling. Because, you know, if it isn't going to be used as a medium of exchange, if it isn't going to revolutionize money, if pe poor people all around the world aren't going to be using Bitcoin, if the only reason to own Bitcoin is to hope it keeps going up, if it's simply a speculative asset, because it's certainly not a safe haven. I mean, how anybody can believe that it's a safe haven asset like gold I mean, if anything, it's a digital speculative asset. It's not a digital safe haven. There's no safety in this thing at all. And, and it's pure hype. It's pure a confidence. The only value it has is the fact that other people might want to buy it. And I know people say that's true with gold, but it's not true with gold. 
Gold has nothing to do with just confidence in, 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 in its value. It has to do with its actual inherent intrinsic value, the real properties of this rare element on the periodic table that can do things that no other metal can do, that is valued in a way that no other metal is valued, and it's been valued that way for thousands of years. This is not something that I'm just making up. This is something that has worked long before any of us are alive. Right? Bitcoin has only been alive for less than a decade, and for people to try to attribute uh, properties to it that don't exist, just shows you how short people's memories are. But but we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see how much bigger the bubble gets. But when it bursts, you know, I'm not going to, I don't know, maybe I will say I told you so. But, um, you know, I guess there, there's a lot of people, though, that I, are going to owe me an apology uh, when uh, when I ultimately get proven right on, on this prediction. <music>